My name is Sister Prince, and today is Monday, July 6, 1987, and I'm interviewing Marion O'Fallon Oldham for the Black History Project of the Missouri Historical Society. Uh, together we will explore Mrs. Oldham's experiences as a black in St. Louis during the 40s and 50s. I'd like to ask you uh, just a little bit, uh, were you born in St. Louis? Yes. I met you, so. yes. you grew up here? Yes. Um, may I ask where you lived? Um, I was born at 17, my parents were living at 1703 Good Avenue, mm -hmm. which uh, later, incidentally, Grace Bumbry oh. lived in, yes. in the same house years, years much, many years later. My parents were uh, renting two or three rooms mm -hmm. on the second floor of a very large home. And uh, when I was brought home from the hospital, I was brought home to that, that home. The home was owned by a well-known school teacher. And um, my, my father was um, a pianist. And he played um, in the theaters. This is before uh, they had the sound in the movies. Oh, yes. It was called Vitaphones. Um, Mm -hmm. um, and he played in many of the theaters in St. Louis. Um, he lost his job shortly after I was born. Um, so that, that was my first home. And then we moved to Carondelet, which is far, far south St. Louis. And we rented a house there for several years. I started kindergarten. Uh, at age four, because there was one black school in the Carondelet area, and they didn't have enough pupils to keep the school open. And so they went around the neighborhood that summer and begged my mother to send me to school at age four, when the usual age, of course, is five, because they wanted to keep the school open. So I started kindergarten in Carondelet at age four. Uh, my parents did not have an automobile, and so my father got tired of the long commute. And so we moved to 4582 Cottage Avenue. Was that in the Ville? That was in the Ville. That is in the Ville. And we lived there for quite some time until my parents bought a home on Walton Avenue when I was about uh, maybe seventh or eighth grade. Mm -hmm. And so where did you attend when you lived on Cottage? Where did you go to school? I went to, um, ironically, there was a school right across the street. Mm -hmm. But I could not go to that school because that was a white school. I could throw a rock or a ball from my front porch over to the schoolyard, but could not go to the what school. What school was it? It was Cope Brilliant. Cope Brilliant. Uh, we could not even play in the schoolyard on Saturdays and Sundays. The police would chase us out. Uh, so I had to walk quite a ways to Marshall School, John Marshall School. And then I was transferred to Simmons School, and I graduated from the eighth grade at, under Julia Davis. Does that name? Yes. She, she was my eighth grade teacher. Must have learned a lot. Right, uh, at the Simmons School. Let me ask you a question about Julia Davis and being in her class. 
Um, did she teach the black history then? Oh, yes. Yes. So. Not a lot, but we certainly got some, yes. Mm -hmm. um, what, I'm, what I'm really looking for is, is where your awareness began. Um, well, let me say to you that my father's name, my father's name was James O'Fallon, and he was one of the O'Fallons of the Lewis and Clark O'Fallons. Okay. His father married a black woman. His father was white and he married a black woman. And so I grew up going to a homestead in far north St. Louis where there were near the near the Grand Avenue water tower where, where there were no uh, blacks at all. Uh, but that was the house where the black O'Fallons lived. In other words, his father was white and married a very dark black woman. And they reared Oh, 10 or 12 children in this home in North St. Louis near the water tower. Um, they, they had neighbors that were friends. And so I played in the homes of white friends and neighbors in the North St. Louis neighborhood. Oh, from, from, from you know, birth on. You so I was aware of the fact that there were white people and black people as long as I can remember. Mm -hmm. And I remember that some uh, were friendly and some were not. When you asked questions of your parents, what kind of answers did they give you? My father, particularly, was steeped in the history of the O'Fallons. The O'Fallons had a park which they, right. which the, they gave to the city of St. Louis. Um, street names, theaters, the name O'Fallon is very rich in history. And he constantly talked about that and told about that. He was a very proud man. And even though he had no money uh, and never made a lot of money, he was, he was very proud, very distinguished looking, and very intelligent. And always instilled in me, the only child, that um, that, that we were great and we were distinguished and we were, um, you know, we, we, special. We, we would have to, have to be very proud of, of ourselves. Did you feel special? I think I felt good about being black when a lot of people did not feel good about being black. You felt comfortable and proud of something. Um, using the word black, um, I always, I'd like to ask, you know, are you more comfortable with black uh, than, if we're talking about the 40s and 50s, than Negro? Well, we certainly used the word Negro then. Mm -hmm. And I guess it was only 30 years ago, maybe, that we started. 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. No, let's see. Well, certainly 20 years ago that we started using the word black. So oh. I think my use of the word black it's simply because I'm accustomed to it now. To, to it now, yeah. But I certainly should, talking about the 40s. The 40s. Um, all right, you, you, where did you go to high school? Sumner. To Sumner. And, and that were, was in the? Bill. Do I know where, where it was? Mm -hmm. I'm talking about year-wise. 43 to 40, um, 
So you had also an outstanding education from the teachers at Sumner. I, I'm led to believe that it was one of the finer educations you could get in the city. Um, I think so. From their teachers. I think so. Um, what aspirations did you have? Well, let me say to you that a number of things uh, occurred to me family-wise, which I think are significant. I had, my father had a sister who was a school teacher. Her name was Bernice O'Fallon, and she taught at the Cole School for years. And she traveled extensively in the summer. She was the first person that I knew that spent the summers traveling in Europe or Asia. And she was a very interesting woman. One of the things that caught my eye was that she was not able to marry. Because at that time, St. Louis school teachers, Negro or white, could not marry. And here was a very interesting woman that had a boyfriend but could not marry him because she would have lost his job. So that was one of the reasons why I got involved in the teachers' union as soon as I became a teacher. Because the teachers' union had, just before I started teaching, uh, brought about the change in the law that, that women teachers could marry. So that that was, that was very significant to me. That, that, that a change had been made? That, that women could not marry. And it was another inequality that I remember as a very young person being faced with. That here is a woman who had a boyfriend and certainly would have married. And she had this, the same boyfriend for maybe 20, 30 years. Um, so there were, and when I went to North St. Louis, for example, to spend the night with my relatives, there was one environment, and then when I came home, there was an all-Negro environment. So that, I guess in answer to your question, when was I aware of certain things, it goes back a long, long time. Okay, and how'd you feel about that? Well, first of all, the family was very supporting and very loving. By family, I mean my mother, my father, my um, father's relatives. And my mother had a few relatives in St. Louis. My mother was born in Mississippi. She came to St. Louis. Um, and this was another thing that I think played a part in my life. Her mother died in childbirth of her sister. So she was reared by a grandmother. She went to a school called Mary Home Seminary in near Columbus, Mississippi. When she left the school, graduated from the school, one summer, the summer after she graduated, one of the storekeepers uh, in the town, in the small town, attempted to molest my mother and her sister. And my grandmother sent her to St. Louis to live. That was how she came to St. Louis to live as a very young woman. She was 16, 17. And she lived with an aunt here and worked at the uh, Phyllis Wheatley YWCA. Um, 
So she was more or less on her own at a very young age, and she says that the only reason she left this environment of Columbus, Mississippi, was because this storekeeper, the her her grandmother felt that she could not handle the the storekeeper. There were two attractive young black women, and she felt they were going to be lost. In fact, they were. They were. Um, they were not raped, but they were. Um, way to get, get right. and to so uh, as a result of my father with his stories about the O'Fallons and my mother's stories about um, why she was in St. Louis that uh, played a part as a very young child it played the, it, it turned out positive it could have turned out negative mm -hmm. No bitterness that acted uh, anger. Well, I don't think that um, bitterness is the is the word. I think that there was an acknowledgement on the part of my family and friends and relatives that situations existed that had to be corrected. And I don't think that the word is bitterness, but there was an urgency to do something about the situation. Be it a school teacher who can't marry because she's female, or be it a, um, a um, black person who could not sit at, in, in a certain spot on the train. I remember when I had my mother's relatives from Flint, Michigan came to visit and we took them to the train station at Union Station for them to board the train to go back to Flint, Michigan. And I remember the uh, conductor telling them that they had to go to the right or to the left. They could not sit either place. And at that point, I was um, aware of the Irene Morgan's decision which said that if you were traveling interstate, you could sit anywhere you wanted to. But this conductor in St. Louis was telling them that they had to go to the right and the whites were going to the left. So I confronted him and I said, they can pretty well. And so I, I, was, I helped them on the train with, with the luggage. And I said, I think they can sit anywhere they like. And of course I got in this, not really argument, but discussion with this conductor. He did, he did and he said he had never heard, heard of it. I remember <laughs> told them that I felt they could sit anywhere they wanted to sit. And they said, no, they will sit where he tells them to sit. Things like that. Um, all right, so now now we're, we're in the 40s. You're graduated mm -hmm. from high school, and you're choosing a college. Uh, there was no choice. Um, I went right across the street to Stowe Teachers College from Sumner High School. And I went to Stowe Teachers College for four and a half years at that time. It was a four and a half year, including the apprentice period. And it was understood that I was going to be a school teacher. There was never any discussion about going anywhere else. First of all, my parents didn't have the money. And second of all, um, if you were a black woman in St. Louis, 
you were either a school teacher or you were a nurse or you were a cleaning person in someone's home. That was the only choice you had. You were not an airline stewardess. You were not a sales clerk at Famous Bar. You were not uh, employed by McDonnell Douglas or you were not at Emerson Electric. You were either a school teacher or a nurse or a cleaning woman. That was all there was. So you made, you made the... Right, so I, it was understood that I was going to the teacher's college and... Uh, did, did you think about it at all? Did you think you wanted to be something else? Or did you not get that far? Um, or were you just on a pattern and that was it? Or did you think that you would like to have gone somewhere else? Did that cross your mind? I think I was content and happy to go to Stowe Teachers College because you see all of my um, role models were my mothers and fathers friends and my aunt's friends mm -hmm. who were school teachers. The school teacher at that time in the black community was the epitome of what you wanted to be. Um, even though you went to a Fallon and even though a Fallon and, and had the family and, and white friends. Even though I went went over to a Fallon. No, no, no. North St. Louis. Okay, but the name of the street was John Avenue. Yeah, but there mm -hmm. was a park and the family mm -hmm. home and mm -hmm. okay. even though you were there, um, you still, there was an area of St. Louis that, that you weren't allowed to, to be part of. Mm -hmm. And um, when I talk about anger, uh, was that was that just taken as uh, like, you were going to go to Stowe, and and that was a normal thing, or, or, you rebelled with the with the man on the on the train. Um, I had no objection to going to Stowe Teachers College. Mm -hmm. uh, as soon as I graduated, the very following summer, I used my own money and my own. Uh, at that point, of course, I was a grown woman. You have to understand that I graduated from high school at age 16. Um, I so I was still a very young woman. I think I just started when you were four. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and at that point, they were giving double promotions. And if you were smart, I remember getting several double, double promotions. So I was 16, so I was pretty young. Um, but so I, I don't... I don't remember wanting to go elsewhere at you, that point. You were you were still a child. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So you've graduated. But what did you do? What did you do socially with your friends? Where did you hang out, as they say, <laughs> in um, those days? In the in the in the ville and in the. Uh, you have to understand that there was no restaurant where we could eat, except a black-owned restaurant. There were no theaters, no movie houses where we could go, except in the black community. There was no um, Fox Theater, no, I mean, there was the Fox Brown, we couldn't go. Did you want to, though, Mary? Oh, yes. And oh, you, yes. that's what I was trying to get oh, to yes. before. Did you want to, you, you, or was that generally just accepted? But but emotionally, did 
you wanted out there? Oh, I think there was not a time that I did not go downtown to, let's say, buy a pair of shoes mm -hmm. or a dress or something that I did not want. When you pass uh, an eating counter, naturally you want to you want to eat. Yeah, you're you thirsty, uh, and particularly children. So I think that from um, a tiny child on, your parents try to shield you from the lunch counters and so forth because they know and you know. But there is a hurt, and there's a feeling of being less than human. Can you see it in people's eyes? I think you can. I think you can. Um, I think I think it was marvelous the way our parents went ahead with life and made something out of themselves and their children and and had a reasonably healthy existence, reasonably healthy, despite uh, the, the real outside world. What was happening? Did the church play a big part in your family? Yes, we are Episcopalians. We belong to a, uh, what is called All Saints Episcopal Church. We still do. My parents are both deceased. My father played the organ with the church for a long time. One of the uh, strong um, personalities in my young, very young life was um, the uh, minister at the church, Father Clark. And my middle name is Marion Clark O'Fallon. And I was named after him. And he was a very strong person. And um, uh, the church played a part. I can remember when my father bought uh, his first grand piano as a pianist. Pianos were there. The piano is in our living room right now, the piano he bought. Well, he had difficulty paying for this piano. And uh, apparently they were threatening to, um, to, take, to take it back. Away. And Father Clark loaned him $200. So the church played a role in uh, supporting. Right. Um, I, I just want to ask one more question about the anger when you would come home or when you would, when it would be there, when you couldn't go somewhere, mm -hmm. you, uh, whether it was when you were younger or with your friends mm -hmm. as teenagers, mm -hmm. uh, was it discussed? Well, let me say to you that there were a number of friends who were very light complexioned and they would go and, and, and be admitted and come back and tell us. And so there were there were blacks who were going because they were very light complexioned. Um, I remember two specifically, two girls that were in my class in high school and in, uh, at Stowe. Um, the word is not anger. The word is that we were all aware of the situation and felt that something needed to be done. Um, we were able to walk the streets without any threat of crime 
we were able to visit each other's homes and just walk the street at 10 or 11 o'clock at night as teenagers without any fear of crime. Um, that I remember very well. I remember having dates and walking to the neighborhood black movie house and coming home without any fear of any a crime or anything. You're probably seeing people on the street that you knew. Right, right. Um, it was a neighborhood where everybody knew everybody. It was a very close, and there's, there are people today who decry that that was a better period than now when we have the ability to buy houses or rent houses all over the metropolitan area. You don't have that uh, very close-knit feel. What do you feel about that? Well, I think there are advantages to certainly knowing everybody in the neighborhood and, and having a sense of community. However, I think you can have that sense of community wherever you are. And whoever you are, mm -hmm. we hope. Uh, when did you take your first overt steps of being a part of uh, not just talking up to the train man, but, mm -hmm. but being joining something or being a part of something that was moving? I think the first time there was a man named Henry Winfield Wheeler. And Henry Winfield Wheeler was a family friend that I had known all my life. And Henry Winfield Wheeler was staging picket lines at the American Theater when I was in I can't remember whether it was when I was in high school or when I was in Stowe. I think probably both. And he would ask me to join him every Saturday because Saturday matinee is when he would picket. Okay. And so I would picket the American Theater with him almost every Saturday afternoon. And at that time, blacks could sit in the, um, what they call the pigeon roost, which was way, 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 way up high. And um, you could not buy a ticket anyplace else at the American. At that time, the American was on market in seven. And so I would pick it with Mr. Wheeler and maybe two or three others. And that's all just just a few of you? Just a few. Did he tell you beforehand, Marianne, what it meant to pick it? I mean, how to act and if people, uh, we talked about the looks in their eyes and what, what it meant. That was not an easy thing to do. It was not difficult for me at all. I guess I had developed um, self-discipline and Actually, at a Saturday matinee, there were very few people that said anything or made any statement or anything. They just went into the theater and just totally ignored us. And that, that went on for years. That couldn't have been pleasant. 
I think at times we passed out literature and sometimes they would take the literature. What did the sign say? Blacks are citizens too, or something to that effect. Or some, Negroes, some probably Negroes. Negroes are citizens too, or something to that effect. Um, there were a few people who would stop and talk and, and express surprise um, that we were there. The newspapers and the uh, television and all that, of course there was no television. It began in the late 40s. But um, uh, we were totally ignored by the, uh, by the press. But we did that for a long time. I understand he just stayed there forever. 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 And so um, that was my first experience, I think. Was it okay? No, that wasn't my first experience. There was what was called the Colored Clerk Circle. And there was a um, supermarket, and I want to say Kroger, but I'm not sure, at the corner of Taylor and Cottage. Mm -hmm. And I lived on Cottage Avenue. And I remember seeing, I was not a part of it, but I remember seeing people picket the store um, and at that time they because were they wouldn't hire employment. Right. Right. so that was my first time of seeing I think a picket line at this color clerk circle for employment at that small store it was a very small store it was just a neighborhood store but it it blacks bought there oh, Negroes yeah. bought there but they no one else was around. It was a totally black neighborhood. Totally black neighborhood. And uh, so that was the first I remember of the Colored Clerk Circle. So then um, when something happened, for instance, war like Washington U admitting uh, Negroes in 48, um, was everyone aware of all of that? Do you remember people talking about it, it being in the Argus or the American? I think that it was probably done on the graduate level first, was it not? I believe so. And so there wasn't a great deal of um, discussion that I can recall. You have to talk to my husband about that because he was at Washington U and was one of those that was uh, trying to open the doors to blacks. In fact, that's how he got involved in the, uh, in the uh, movement by being at Washington and working with a group trying to admit blacks to the university. But I don't remember a great deal uh, in the newspapers or a great deal um, being said or done about it because I think it was probably a, such a small number of people involved when it was on the graduate Okay, so you picketed at the American, and um, uh, Mr. Wheeler, though I hear he spent a great deal of time at the American, I think he must, there must have been three or four Mr. Wheelers, because 
I know that he was over, it had to do with the fairgrounds uh, mm -hmm. park, the swimming mm -hmm. pool. And well, he was, he was sort of all over. I might say to you that my parents were totally sympathetic and encouraged me every week to go to go do it that. with Mr. Mm -hmm. Wheeler. That was my And even though they did not go, uh, they were very uh, supportive and, and very anxious for me to go. Were they afraid for you? That there was no fear attached to it at that time. Um, all right. What was what was next for you? Well, I started teaching. Nineteen forty-eight January. And um, where did you teach? My first job was at um, Coke Brilliant. School, which was um, across the street from where I couldn't go. Couldn't go. And there was a principal there by the name of Mr. Langston. Oh. And Mr. Langston was a family friend. And um, he was a wonderful man. And I'm sure in your history you have the name Langston. Right. I was moved from the Langston School to the um, Washington School. Um, after just a few months, they needed a, um, an assistant kindergarten teacher in the kindergarten at the Washington School. And at Washington School, which is where I spent most of my teaching career, um, Washington School is on um, Euclid near Fountain. And this is where you had the blacks with the most, perhaps the most education and the most money at that particular time in the city. And so at this point I am teaching children of school teachers and, and of uh, perhaps as I said the most educated. So it was doctors. Right, right. Um, Did you like teaching? Yes, very much. You were a speech therapist, or you were just... No. My major was elementary education, and my master's was also elementary education. Um, it's written somewhere that you had... <laughs> um, all right, you're teaching now. Mm -hmm. and, um, After about... Um, a few months at Washington School, I met a woman named Alice Stewart, who was also a teacher there. And she encouraged me to go to Sticksbury and Fuller downtown because they were going to have a demonstration to try to get um, blacks served at the lunch counter. Who is they? Was it a group? Was it a She talked about a group. At that time, I wasn't sure about it. It was CORE, St. Louis CORE. Mm -hmm. And so I um, discussed it with my parents, and then I went to this Monday night, uh, as I recall, it was a Monday night demonstration at uh, Sticksbury and Fuller downtown, where we sat at the lunch counter for 18 months trying to get uh, service at the lunch counter. Um, 
I subsequently joined CORE, St. Louis CORE, and became very active in that group from approximately 1948-49 until 1963-64. So for the next almost 20 years, 48-63, um, CORE became my life. I was very active in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of demonstrations, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sit-ins, hundreds and hundreds of what we call tests, where we would go in to see if we would be served. Uh, made a lot of speeches to a lot of groups. Went to a meeting every Tuesday night. St. Louis Corps met every Tuesday night, and I don't think I missed a dozen Tuesday nights in all those years. It's like a religion. Mm-hmm. The meetings, uh, the planning, mm -hmm. the strategy. Mm -hmm. um, was there, did you have, you recruited people or did they just come? They just came. We were, we had. Um, Describe a meeting. Okay, we had a very small group of people. There were times when we had a lot of visitors and a lot of people, but for the most part, the group was made up of Washington University whites and blacks, and um, all in all, maybe 25, 30 people. Very close-knit. Hand-picked? No, not really. Um, some of the people were the um, people that had tried to get blacks admitted to Washington U. Um, A natural blending. Right. And some were, were uh, just people. Um, we came together once a month. We changed officers very frequently because we wanted everyone to have an opportunity to be president, to be secretary, and all as a learning experience. Um, we socialized, we had picnics as well as sit-ins, etc. cetera. Uh, we played bridge. We, um, we became a, a very close-knit group. Um, we were very dedicated and very sincere and very nonviolent. Uh, we studied Gandhi. We knew um, the techniques that he had used. Um, and we were committed to what we were doing. We were um, available all day, every Saturday. And we had sit-ins at either Walgreens or Stixburn Fuller or Kresge or Pope's Cafeteria or wherever. And we were somewhat successful. And I remember the time when we had a wallet-sized card printed with the names of the restaurants where blacks could eat. And that was a real achievement. At the same time, we were working politically to get the members of the St. Louis Board of Aldermen to change the law. And we worked very hard to get the um, aldermen to vote to change the public accommodation laws. We were not successful until we began getting black aldermen elected 
and that brings us to the political that was the reason why in the meantime I've gotten married and my husband and I now have gotten active politically to try to get blacks elected to the Board of Aldermen for the sole purpose of changing the public accommodation laws. My so, husband is a lawyer. Right. My husband, of course, um, had, I think, uh, much more soul-searching and much more thinking to do about this. My husband is white. He was with a law firm that gave him an ultimatum. Oh. Uh, either you stay with the law firm and you, you stop the core activities. Uh, so he had some really big decisions to make. And he chose to stay with the group and leave the law firm. Um, I think also he had other, um, other decisions, other, uh, pressures. For example, he was denied admission to the um, St. Louis Bar Association. And, because uh, of core? I think because he was married to me. When did, um, what year did you get married? 1951. We just celebrated our 36th oh, wedding Oh, I know. Mary told me. I, mean, right. <laughs> right. I called up and I said, I know that you know Mary. Are things, is her life, you know, is there anything I should, it's just a Willie. They just had a 36th year anniversary. At the St. Louis Public Library. And, and had about 700 people. Right, so. right. Um, and I think there were times when he felt he was not getting, um, and I'm not sure that he would say this as I'm going to say it, but I think he, I think there were times when he felt that um, the judges were not giving him fair decisions because of his marriage. But um, be that as it may, we, we, we went ahead. Uh, we were, when I tell you we were active, I mean we were active we were either interviewing someone at the May Company or we were interviewing, we, we were, and we always went in interracial groups. We always went with a, a, a spirit of goodwill. We were never angry. We always went with, the, uh, with a very optimistic uh, uh, feeling that things were going to improve. Um, it was a very wholesome, healthy outlook, and I think as a result of that, uh, it really changed my life in terms of how I see and view and deal with people. As a result of those many years, working with CORE, and we did have some real accomplishments. Uh, for example, the City Council of University City asked us to test every restaurant in University City, and we did it because they knew that we would report back to them very factually as to how many restaurants were open and how many were not. 
And I remember being so sick one night because we had tried to finish this report by a certain time. And we'd gone to a number of restaurants and we were hoping, I hope they don't serve, I hope they don't serve. We're just so, <laughs> we're just so full. Because <laughs> then you had to eat or they'd be right. Right, right. We, well, we, if, you know, if we were served, we had to eat. And I remember coming home that night being so sick. <laughs> we won, but I want to throw up. <laughs> But anyway, um, I think we gained the respect of the uh, community because we, first of all, tried very hard to keep the organization communist-free. Was that difficult? No, but we... Did they want to use you? We, we of course, were labeled that, and we had to, we had to go out of our way. Secondly, we... Um, tried to do things um, as carefully and well-planned and as, um, as non-violently as we could. And by non-violent, I do not mean just physically, I mean mentally non-violent. Yeah, well, that's, I suppose that's why I keep bringing the word anger in, because it's, it's right. such an emotional. Um, so we, we, were, we were making some success. We were able to get University City, we were able to get the public accommodations law changed, I think, 1962, which was a long fight. 65, was it? okay. Um, it was a long, long, long fight, but we were, sh we were showing some success. Mm -hmm. Now, all of this was done on practically no money. Our, our annual budget of core was maybe 500. I mean, it was very Where small. Where did it come money. from? a few donations and money out of our pocket, but very little money. We printed a newsletter, which was very well received, and we mailed that once a month, I think. Um, my mother and father, for example, babysat for some of the young people in Corps that had children on the night of our meeting, so every Tuesday night, a couple of these people would drop off their children. Um, so it was that kind it was, of a... It was wonderful. Right. Um, so then we move ahead to um, 1963, which was the year that we first got a word in the newspapers. All of this time when we're sitting in 18 months at Sixbury and Fuller where we're sitting in at Kresge and Woolworths and all these places, not one word in the newspapers. But in 1963, there was a demonstration at a bank in East St. Louis. And... Is that the Jefferson? No, that was, that was another bank. St. Louis Corps had been working with the banks in St. Louis for, oh, maybe two years. And most of the banks uh, were somewhat cooperative, and at least they would talk with us. Um, Jefferson Bank did not want to talk, even though Jefferson Bank had been in an all-Negro neighborhood and had some black employees. But then it moved to a new location and did not have any. They were very um, non-cooperative. To make a long story short, after about a two-year period, we, we announced that we were going to have a picket line around the bank mm -hmm. 
in uh, September, I think it was, of 1963. Uh, the word got out to the newspapers and there, were, there was an editorial and so forth. But to make a long story short, we had the demonstration. The police overreacted in that they had police stationed in the basement of the bank, they had police stationed across the street and a lighting company on Jefferson and um, Olive, Olive, Olive. Um, and so as a result of that demonstration, there were, I think, 10 of us arrested. The police came to this house. We have lived here for 20, almost 28 years. So the police came to this house on a Saturday night. And I think my husband must have thought something was amiss because I had never known him to say on a Saturday night, I think I'm going to a movie without me. But he decided to leave home without me that night. But he didn't say very much. <laughs> Ruth Porter, does that name ring yes. a bell? Yes. Came over that night to visit. And she and I were sitting in the kitchen. And she, I had warmed up some leftover spaghetti. She and I were sitting at the table about 9 or 9.30 that night. And the doorbell, no, it was a knock on the door. And the sheriff was there, and he was there to arrest me. And he arrested me. And so Ruth Porter left here and went to my mother's house. And my father was dead. And told my mother about it so she wouldn't read about it. And my mother and Ruth went down to the jail. Well, they drove me to all of the other, I think there were 13 of us now, all of the other homes, and no one was at home. Because I had called them when I had gone upstairs with them, and the sheriff's men, men were he here. You called one and that they called Right, and called. told them what was happening. Because he had read the names to me, mm -hmm. and read the order to me. And what did he say? Why was he arrested? for contempt of court uh, at the Jefferson Bank, and we were alleged to be the leaders, and they were arresting the leaders, not necessarily those that had gone into the bank, but, but the so-called leaders. So we were in jail for, I, was, I think I was there for 11 and a half days. But we were in jail. Right, and I remember going in that night, and they stripped us and they gave us the prison uniform, gave me the prison uniform. And when I got into this huge dormitory-like room, there were double bunks. And I was assigned to this upper bunk. And there was a light bulb. And they kept the lights on very bright all night. Of course, I didn't think about sleeping. I was thinking about the situation. Um, the next day, all of the others uh, surrendered, my husband included, and uh, I think we were all out immediately. And then we had a trial. As I recall, we had a trial for that lasted a number well, of no, days. No, wait, you said you were there 11 days, and then you said you were out immediately. 
I believe we were out, I believe I was out the very next day, which was a Sunday. Uh-huh. Um, on bond. On bond. My husband and the others went in, surrendered that day. Uh, I believe they were in, and I believe we were, no, I think they, they were also out, and then we had a trial, and we were convicted, and we went back in for 11 and a half days. Um, the, the articles surrounding that whole period, I imagine the Historical Society has, because there was a lot written about that. I mean, our pictures were on the front page. There were candlelight vigils uh, where people locked arms and sang, we shall have overcome, and they had candles, and there were nuns, and there were all sorts of people uh, that had a human chain around the jail every night while we were there. What words could you use to describe how you felt about Well, we were still fighting when we were in jail. For example, I started a school in jail where we were teaching some of the inmates to read and write and so forth. We started an exercise class in the jail. We asked for real fruit. We never got fruit. We always, it was always peeled fruit that was, um, it tasted like it had flour and water mixed in with it. And we, de we, we demanded real fruit. Well, you have to understand that the director of public welfare at that time was a man named Chester Stovall. And Chester Stovall would come to the jail every day when we were there. Uh, and we told him we wanted, first of all, we wanted books and magazines, of which there were none. And secondly, we wanted uh, fruit. Because the food, I felt, was really horrible. And so we got some fruit, and we got some books, and we got some magazines, which we shared with the other inmates. Of course, the other inmates, thought we were getting a lot of publicity and they weren't getting any and so there was you know that problem some of them were in there for murder for drugs there was a lot of drugs even back then and um, they were they were in there for shoplifting everything did that change you a lot that what did that do to you Well, I guess the um, old saying is change the conditions where you are. And so we were trying to change, change what was there. Too. You were ahead of your time with, it, <laughs> with your programs in jail. What, what, was the, what was the most outstanding thing that happened in the 50s? As you said, you made waves and you made a difference, but even if it was a small thing, was it the first or was it? The largest well, I think the first thing was that blacks and whites were able to sit and talk. And Maggie Dagan, do you know her? No, but I know the name. Okay, Maggie Dagan and her husband, Herb Dagan, would have discussion groups in their living room on a Sunday night with whites and blacks. And this was the first instance I know of whites and blacks communicating at all in the whole city of St. I think I think the fact that CORE was able to show that blacks and whites could work together on common problems, respect each other, and work together was was significant. What was it like sitting? I mean, I know you you were 
were you were you were already married then. No, you can't. You were already married then. And so being with with whites wasn't as different for you. Uh, well, it, it goes back, and the reason I mentioned the um, home on John Avenue in North mm -hmm. St. Louis is because I had played with right, whites. Right. But that was very unusual. There mm -hmm. were very few, if any, yeah. very few blacks that had that uh, that had that opportunity. But I would, I would, uh, I would think that maybe being in your position, this would have been quite a an interesting thing for you to watch and be aware of. As you as you're talking about it now, that it was happening, and I, I think were that people I, afraid? I think I think in answer to your question, the most significant thing in St. Louis in the '50s was that you had a small group of people, black and white, truly of one mind. We were not uh, trying to become. Uh, all we wanted to do was to open up public accommodations. What am I not asking you that I don't, may even not know enough to ask uh, or be aware of? What is there something that you feel about those 20 years? Well, I think that a significant thing that I think has been overlooked is that there were many, many blacks who wanted to do perhaps what I was doing, but felt as if they could not, be, mainly because of job security. You have to understand that there were many, many blacks who wanted to change the, the, the situation. But their job um, situation was such. You see, there are very few blacks, even today, that are independent enough to even speak out publicly on an issue. Very few. And so I was fortunate in having the security that I could picket, sit in, whatever. And I have been very fortunate in that my husband and I have had the um, ability to speak out. For example, just this past Saturday, the 4th of July, he spent the day in federal court on the Eads Bridge situation. Um, disaster. How they could have even. Right. But um, did you get her? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, I guess we were, I, we were fortunate in being able to be free now. And the thing that bothers me is that even today, in 1987, we have so few blacks that are economically free to even speak out on any issue for fear of losing a job, 
they cannot speak out. Do you feel the leadership today is different than it was? Not really. I think there is still a control on the part of this community, the black community, the control is still there by certain whites. They control the community. It's changed a lot, but not enough. Right. Um, we're talking about the control and the, the distilling control. What, how can that be changed? Maybe one for change. Well, I think, I think the um, blacks have to become financially independent, and it's very difficult. And there are very few blacks in St. Louis that are in a position to really speak out on any issue. Um, and that was true in the 50s and in the 60s, and it's still true. Well, what, what's being done? very little. Were you involved with the NAACP? Yes. And For a long, a long while. And how, how did that, how did that work differently than CORE? Well, it's at uh, a certain time we were involved with both organizations. Mm -hmm. um, the NACP was much more structured in terms of uh, officers and constitution and bylaws and all those things. And we had no problem for a long, long time. Um, uh, we chose to, to spend our time with, with, with CORE, but we were involved in both organizations for a long time. But did, did they run into each other? I mean, Not really. They, they didn't. Each had its place. Well, CORE was active on a weekly basis, and mm -hmm. NACP tended not to be quite as active. Mm -hmm. And it was different. You had, you had, you had, uh, it was a combination of black and white. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It did a job. Um, all right. You are now um, outstanding as far as your accomplishments. Um, do you sort of look back and, and, and wonder where it all went, how it happened? It's, um, how'd you, you know, I how'd think, you that way? I think I have been very blessed to have a warm, loving family. I think I've also been exceedingly blessed to have a magnificent, wonderful husband. And we have two children and they are wonderful people. And I think we have many, many um, outstanding friends, and I think that we have made a contribution to this city. And at one time, my husband was national president of CORE. So we were also involved on the national level. CORE had a, had a convention once a year, and so we knew a lot of people throughout the country who were involved. Um, I think we've made a contribution. I think we're still making a contribution as attested to 
the Eats Bridge situation when my husband and Lou Gildon um, spent all day Friday and Saturday getting ready and uh, free of charge uh, just went ahead and did what had to be done. I want to say it's like the war horse. They don't, you know, they don't stop. They right. just keep going. And uh, I think we have gained the respect of the uh, community, white and black. I think that um, people believe that we're sincere and we're honest and that we have integrity. And uh, it, it carries over into our, into his legal work. And for the last eight years, I have been in the real estate business. Mm -hmm. And it certainly carries over there. I don't have any trouble uh, convincing people that if I list their house for sale, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a good job. What does it feel like to, uh, I have two what does it feel like questions. One, what does it feel like when you can list anybody almost anywhere or sell them something almost anywhere? It has to feel pretty good. It feels good, except that uh, eight years ago when I got my license, mm -hmm. uh, Mary Albert suggested I go to a very well-known real estate company and um, become a sales agent with them. And they told me very quickly, that they were not ready for a black. They were very open and honest about it. And I think they realized after they said it, 